You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, M.D., Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Commodore Obvious, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. We talked last time about Captain William Phipps and his skull-duggerous buccaneer crew, as well as his early treasure-hunting career. When we left off, Phipps was still in Boston, where the Rose had been sitting idle for 15 weeks. All the while, his crew was terrorizing the people of New England, not piracy, just lawlessness and all the while they got away with it. But today we're going to begin with Captain George Churchill, who, at that very moment, was opening up super-secret sealed orders from Rear Admiral Sir John Narborough, orders to sail south and hunt the greatest treasure galleon yet lost in the West Indies. This is episode 177, A Rare Prize. George Churchill is important. To our story, not to today necessarily, we'll be brushing over his role in this story pretty heavily, but in general, to our larger overarching narrative, George Churchill is a key figure. He was the younger brother of John Churchill, the future Duke of Marlborough, who at this moment was busy being dashing and handsome in the court of King Charles, catching the eye of a similarly dashing young woman named Sarah. That alone would make George Churchill worthy of note here, but he's a lot more than that. During the war, George Churchill befriended the Prince of Denmark, Prince George, who would, the very year that this story is taking place, 1683, marry a young English royal named Anne. George Churchill and Prince George and Anne and Marlborough and Sarah, all of the names I just mentioned, among others, They were all members of what would go on to become the most influential clique in British society. They called it the Cockpit Circle, after Princess Anne's apartments in the palace, the Cockpit. In time, George Churchill is going to be the most powerful Englishman in the Royal Navy. 
his only superior being Prince George of Denmark, the Lord High Admiral. Those two will essentially lead the entire naval arm of the War of the Spanish Succession, and it's going to be George Churchill who will come to the Queen and her husband with the suggestion that they start commissioning privateers again. As Lord Commissioner of the Navy, George Churchill's name, not his signature, but his name, would appear on the commissions of men like Henry Jennings and Benjamin Hornigold and even Charles Vane. So George Churchill is important. But that's not for 20 years yet. Today, Churchill is lying at anchor off the coast of Bermuda with those orders from Narborough. His first order of business is to enlist the aid of the HMS Bonetta, a frigate that's currently part of a convoy crossing the Atlantic. Together they are to go seek out a singularly rich legend. Neither man nor Narborough knew the name of the ship that they were going to find, but they'd all heard the story. Some forty years ago, a Spanish treasure galleon got caught in the worst hurricane in living memory. Somewhere in the West Indies, that ship went down. The crew, those that survived at least, landed on the north coast of Santo Domingo, and eventually made it home to tell their tale. That's a, it's a bedtime story that sailors told themselves. Maybe they'll be sailing along one day and just stumble across the richest of all Spanish wrecks and be able to retire rich men. Everyone assumed this ship to lie somewhere off the north coast of Hispaniola, which is sensible. The problem there was the encroachment of all those French buccaneers from Tortuga and Cap Francais. It had always been too dangerous for the Spanish to go searching for it. The English, too, when they were at war with France, but right now, in the aftermath of the Third Anglo-Dutch War, they had a rare moment of superiority where they felt it was safe enough to look. So George Churchill and the captain of the Bonetta, a man named Edward Stanley, were to scour the northern coast of Hispaniola until they landed a legendary prize. It was the right time to do it. These were probably the right men for the job. Their plan was solid with only one tiny, inconsequential little hiccup. They were digging in the wrong wrong place. place. (laughs) Their prize was not off the coast of Santo Domingo. It was nearby, but not quite. Little did these illustrious captains of the Royal Navy know that that wreck lie in English waters. La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción lay buried at a reef at the very tip of the Bahamas, called the Silver Reef. Today, the Silver Reef is still a British possession. It belongs to the Turks and Caicos Islands, but it's part of the Bahamas island chain. Initially, I intended to spend time with Churchill and Stanley, but it's going to be a fruitless search for them. They're going to spend over a year scouring the coast of Hispaniola and find... Nothing. Instead, I'd like to return to Captain William Phipps. After a leisurely few weeks in London, followed by a stopover in Ireland, and then a long, lazy trip across the Atlantic, and finally a full fifteen weeks in Boston, William Phipps had bought five months 
for Captains Churchill and Stanley to do their searching. All that time, the Spanish were devoting all of their resources to watching him. All it cost was the pain and suffering of several dozen of the king's subjects and a half-dozen lawsuits that, for some reason, were all tossed out. Now, last time I never really got around to the alleged conspiracy, because we don't know what deals, if any, were cut here, what plots were laid. Everyone agrees, and by everyone I mean contemporary observers and modern historians, but they all agree that Phipps was serving as a distraction here. What nobody knows is whether or not Phipps himself was in on it. There are three ways to look at it. First, you could see William Phipps as an innocent and noble little lamb who was whipped around by the winds of fate. That's what Cotton Mather in his biography of Phipps would have you believe. You could also, as many of his contemporaries did, see Phipps as a clever, fast-talking opportunist. That's the characterization I like. But there were those who saw William Phipps as a devious mastermind, a puppeteer behind the scenes of all of this. Now that story's fun, and we can't discredit it completely, considering how little we know, but that would require William Phipps to be an exceptional con man, playing the role of a, you know, clever, fast-talking opportunist. Now, once William Phipps and the Rose left Boston, and the company of their one-time ship's minder, John Nepp, the record loses track of him for a while. We do have a few stories of his voyage, but those come from Reverend Mather, who can at best only be kind of trusted here. William Phipps' first stop was New Providence Island, but then, shortly thereafter, the Rose moved on to dive that wreck nearby. They found another English vessel diving the wreck already. Now, Phipps chased them off with no trouble at all, but it was already too late. His last very successful dive on this vessel had gotten the word out. People from all over the world were diving this particular wreck, and by this point, it had been picked pretty dry. Were you on a cruise of the West Indies around this time, you could find men in New Providence, Port Royal, Tortuga, even Charlestown, all of them wearing the very finest clothes and drinking the very finest wine, until the coin dried out. Phipps did send his men to dive the wreck, but only pulled up 1,000 pounds sterling. That's not much when you divide it among the entire crew. Remember, they were being paid a share, not a wage. It certainly wasn't going to be enough to cover the cost of this voyage, that would certainly upset the king. Which makes this next vignette suspicious. This is a tale that only comes down to us thanks to Cotton Mather, so I'm going to let him do the telling. Reverend Mather writes that, shortly after this disappointing haul, a group of crewmen, quote, approached him on the quarterdeck with drawn swords in their hands, and required him to join with them in running away with the ship to drive a trade of piracy in the South Seas. And remember, this was 1683. Right now, at this very moment, buccaneers from all over the Americas were converging 
to sail into the South Seas. This was Bachelor's Delight, and Edward Davis and William Dampier and the Signet and Charles Swan, they were already down there in the Pacific Ocean. All of those others, men like Mathurin de Marais and Ravno de Luzon, Peter Harris the Younger, every pirate who had a ship, was getting ready to sail south. That makes this part believable to me. Right now would be exactly the time that a group of mm, less than reputable men would demand exactly what Mather says they did. But then he goes on, quote, Captain Phipps, though he had not so much of a weapon as an ox goad or a jawbone in his hands, like another Samson with a most undaunted fortitude, he rushed in upon them, and with the blows of his bare hands felled many of them and quelled the rest. <sighs> Bullshit. Of course, I don't know for sure. No one wrote down what was actually happening at the time, but, I mean, come on, there's just no way that what Mather just told us was even close to true. Ten pirates, ten potentially mutinous buccaneers with their blades drawn against one unarmed Massachusetts shipwright. And at first I can't believe that anybody in their right mind would be stupid enough to believe this kind of nonsense, but then I remember. I remember that the exact same people who were going to believe this same preacher when a bunch of teenage girls come forward with claims of witchcraft in the community, those are the people who believe this story. But I'll tell you what happened on that ship in the Bahamas. Again, I don't know that this is what happened, but this is definitely what happened. William Phipps turned to those fierce pirates with their blades drawn and said, Huh, yeah, good idea, lads. Let's do exactly that. You know what? We're all going to be rich. Because that's what you do in that situation. That's how you avoid getting run through. But of course, unless you are prepared to hang at the gallows for the crime of stealing one of the king's own ships... You don't actually do that. Cotton Mather tells us another fanciful tale, another whopper, wherein the rose anchors to Corrine after that attempted mutiny. Now that does make sense if the crew was preparing to, I don't know, sail to the South Seas for a month's long voyage of piracy. But I digress. Mather writes... Quote, the men, whereof he had about an hundred, went all but about eight or ten to divert themselves, as they pretended, in the woods. They all entered into an agreement that about seven o'clock they would seize the captain and those eight or ten who they knew to be true, and leave them to perish on this island. End quote. According to Cotton Mather, after William Phipps walloped the ringleaders good, the rest of the mutinous buccaneers went ashore to plan a better mutiny. But Phipps, again, according to Cotton Mather, turned the tables. Almost literally. He and those eight or ten men went ashore and turned the guns, which had been 
taken ashore so they could careen the ship, they turned them around so that they were facing inland. They didn't take the time to spike them, but that would keep them from firing on the rose while they made their getaway. Then Phipps took all of the guns that were still on board and moved them all to the leeward ports pointing directly at the shore. With the guns thus arrayed, William Phipps said something dashing and heroic. I believe it was, with the power of Skull. it really doesn't matter because none of this actually happened, then he fired a volley at those guns while the rose sailed away into the sunset, leaving those filthy, dirty pirates behind. Now that... I was gonna say it makes a good story. It doesn't. It makes, I guess, an exciting story. But here's what really happened, in my humble opinion. Phipps, after his disappointing haul at that new Providence wreck was freaking out. He had to pay all of those men, and that just wasn't going to cover the cost of this voyage. He would lose all favor that he had managed to curry with Lord Narborough and even the king. But then, an opportunity. I suspect that those men did come to him with a plan to sail the South Seas, and I suspect that he did agree to it. If you were going to sail for the South Seas, you would have to careen your vessel, which would give William Phipps a perfectly good opportunity to maroon his crew, more than a hundred of them, on some lonely, isolated Bahamas Island. Now, it's not impossible that the crew did plan on mutinying against William Phipps. It is impossible that he beat them with a jawbone, but... Cotton Mather again and again in an effort to paint this, by that point, Puritan candidate for governor in the best possible light, builds him up to levels that are frankly superhuman. It would look bad if what he actually did was lie to his crew and abandon them all to die so he could sail away with their silver. However, after this little fable... We lose track of the rose again for a few months. The next time that the record catches up with Captain Phipps was in Port Royal, Jamaica, in April 1684. To give you a bit of a reference point here, Henry Morgan had just been ousted as the acting governor of Jamaica, and the Buccaneers of America by Alexander Exquimelin was just published. There was some drama going down in Port Royal. So what exactly was Phipps getting up to there in Jamaica? Well, first of all, he was gathering a crew. He'd just lost all but eight or ten of his men in a tragic accident. Beyond that, though, there was definitely something going on behind the scenes. By this point, George Churchill and his ship, the Falcon, had given up on finding the treasure. The Bonetta and Captain Stanley, though, just happened to arrive in Port Royal at this same time. We don't know if Captain Stanley met with William Phipps. And if they did, we don't know what they talked about, but it's incredulous to assume that they were both in Port Royal by happenstance. There are reports that suggest there may have been a Spanish defector in Port Royal at that time. If he had access to some top-secret information, information that recent events had shown him was in high demand, he might be willing to share that for those as can pay. 
and Port Royal was a good spot to get the word out. We do know that after just a few weeks in Port Royal, both the Rose and Bonetta set out, and it looks like they were sailing together. They sailed directly for the southern Bahamas and the Silver Reef, where La Nuestra Señora's wreck was waiting. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Captain Stanley searched the south and west of the reef, and he found nothing. William Phipps searched the east and north of the reef and found nothing. At least, William Phipps says he found nothing. That part of the reef, the northeastern section, is where the ship was located, but Phipps didn't happen to stumble across her, which is believable, La Nuestra Senora did get pushed deep into the reef and then was submerged and had 40 years for coral to grow up while the ship disintegrated. It would have been hard to find her. But if we were working under the assumption that Captain Phipps was that mastermind behind a nefarious plot, you could perhaps read into this. After searching fruitlessly for several more weeks, the Bonetta and the Rose gave up and returned to England. This was a tense few weeks for William Phipps. There in London he was interviewed about his voyage by several naval officials. It wasn't quite an interrogation, but it wasn't far off. He had to answer a lot of hard questions about his time on board the Rose alongside John Knepp. 
John Knepp's journals and official reports were full of recriminations of Phipps and the crew. However, William Phipps does appear to have talked his way out of the accusations of John Knepp and come out smelling fresh. Not only did he overcome the trials of a mutinous lot of buccaneers, he returned the rose in good shape and with a bit of treasure. The wear and tear done to the rose and the use of supplies was assessed to be about 700 pounds sterling, which Phipps had just enough to cover. He would not have had enough to cover it if those mutinous crewmen had been paid as they were promised and not abandoned on some sandy islet out in the Bahamas. Still, the council there in England judged that Phipps was to be a stand-up gentleman, and despite failing to bring back a massive pile of silver, he did end with his accounts in the black, which is more than can be said for Captains Churchill or Stanley. William Phipps was permitted to stay there in London to look for other opportunities at court. The king and Sir Narborough were no longer interested in this particular venture, but William Phipps did put his petition out there. Peter Earle describes Phipps' time in London as a shirt-clutching affair, joining the ranks of petitioners who were little more than middle-class beggars looking for investors at court. Other historians suggest that Narborough kind of handed William Phipps off to another man who was at this moment looking for an opportunity. A known gambler who associated with West Indian ruffians more than a few times in his career. The Duke of Albemarle was, after all, Sir Henry Morgan's patron once upon a time. Albemarle owned most of Carolina, and he had estates in every county in England, but his reputation was suffering. The world was moving on and leaving the aging man behind. He needed a big win, something that was big and, and flashy and exciting, something that would get people talking about the Duke again. And Albemarle chose to put all of his chips on one fast-talking New England shipwright. He was a better patron than John Narborough or the King had been, which was kind of the point. He wasn't getting into this for the piles of silver, well, you know, not just for the piles of silver. This venture was about showing up the Stuarts with a big show of lavish patronage and private naval power, of succeeding where everyone else had failed, and then hopefully in the end, handing the king a pile of silver, which of course he would accept begrudgingly if it came from Albemarle. The Duke granted William Phipps two new ships. Phipps was no longer in command of the Rose. By this point, she had sailed on to New England and been given over to Thomas Pound. The man who had been Phipps' first mate was given command of the sloop Henry. William Phipps himself had command of a frigate, the James and Mary. This voyage was exceptionally well documented. Men on both vessels kept journals that detailed every step of the voyage. Those records would be turned over to Albemarle at the end of the voyage, who would keep them safe and readable for later historians to pore over. We know the names of nearly every sailor on board, and we have records of their wages and the food they ate. 
The crews of these two vessels, aside from five who had been on board with William Phipps on the Rose, were professional sailors employed by the Duke of Albemarle. They were supplied and paid a wage by the Duke himself, and they were loyal to Albemarle. They followed Phipps' commands on this ship, but he wasn't the boss. Albemarle may have been a gambler, and this voyage was a gamble, but he's not stupid enough to leave two of his ships in the hands of what is almost a complete stranger. Now, I would love, considering the fact we have such good records here, I would love to dive into this voyage and talk about all the trials and tribulations they faced. But there really isn't that much to tell. When the ships needed supplies, they stopped at a friendly English port and bought them like good law-abiding citizens. Which... They were. The seas, for the most part, were calm and friendly, and after a few weeks the ships arrived at Ajoboros, which was to serve as their base camp. On their first day there in the Bahamas, Phipps sent out Rogers and the Henry with very specific instructions on where to search. Ten hours later, the Henry returned, with no news. The following morning, the Henry set out again, but returned after only two hours. When they pulled up alongside James and Mary, Rogers held up handfuls of silver. Exactly 45 years and eight days after first running aground, Manuestra Señora de la Concepción had been found. Luck is a real thing. Sometimes you just stumble upon a windfall of good fortune. But the Henry had been searching for the Concepcion for maybe twelve hours. If we were to take into account traveling time to and from the Silver Reef, it was closer to eight hours. And there was certainly some good luck on these first couple of days. The weather was clear and sunny, for example. The ships were fresh and clean, and the crew was fed and happy. They had a lot going for them here in this search, but eight hours? That's a single workday. That's pushing credulity. Now, nobody who is credible is willing to say, you know, William Phipps knew Narborough was using him as a distraction, so he pretended not to find the wreck site until he was in command of his own voyage to find the ship for which he personally would get all the credit and most of the riches. And they shouldn't say that. All of the records we have, and we have a bunch, don't say anything to suggest that. Of course, those records were written by men who were about to receive a huge bonus from the Duke for this massive find. If, that is, they kept their mouths shut. Everybody hints at it, of course, everybody dances around it, and they point out the many reasons we should not jump to conclusions without evidence here. After all, luck does exist. But this was very lucky. The actual work of recovering the silver took way longer than finding La Nuestra Señora. The work of preparing for the salvage took longer than finding her. They careened and repaired and resupplied their ships for two weeks before finally heading to the site. The actual salvage took two full months. 
Before they could even begin pulling any silver up, they faced two weeks of what Peter Earle calls, quote, considerable crowbar and pickaxe work, breaking off coral and clearing away to the treasure chambers of the ship, end quote. The work itself was immensely difficult. Their boats left the motherships well before dawn and returned about dusk. They used diving bells for the first leg of the drop and then swam the rest of the way to the bottom. From there they had to find the treasure, dig it free, and then pull it back up. Initially this work was done entirely by slaves. Albemarle had a surplus of slaves from his holdings in Carolina and sent a number of them down here for this work. And those slaves were put to intense work, ten hours a day, seven days a week. And it proved to be too much. They suffered oxygen deprivation. They got the bends. Their sheer exhaustion very nearly killed them. So they worked out a schedule that included the slaves, but also a good number of the crewmen. You didn't have to go down every day, and when you did, you didn't have to work all day long, but even so, working half a day every other day, it was still too much. Phipps finally accepted that he would have to slow the diving schedule down or risk losing his labor force. Neither option was ideal, though. They were pulling up hundreds of pieces of eight a day, and that quickly piled up into thousands, but that wasn't enough here. The cost of ship maintenance and victuals and daily wages, it took them weeks to catch up to what had already been put on the account, and they were outpacing it, but slowly. Their numbers weren't adding up to very much profit. It wasn't sustainable here. But then, in yet another almost unbelievable twist of good fortune, two more ships arrived on the scene. Now everyone immediately jumped into action when they saw those sails on the horizon. They raised the alarm, they primed the guns, every hand was roused. William Phipps grabbed his copies of Albemarle's orders and his writ from the king that guaranteed him exclusive rights on this wreck. The crews of the Henry and the Marion James were ready for anything. Henry fired off a warning shot, but those two ships continued their heading right toward Phipps and Rogers. And when they arrived, lo and behold, they were ships that were known to all of the former crewmen of the Rose. On their previous voyage to the Bahamas, just a few months gone now, these two ships had accompanied the Rose and William Phipps. Now nobody knows if this meeting was somehow planned, and if it was whether or not Phipps was involved, but it turned out to be exactly what everyone needed here. These two newly arrived sloops negotiated a contract by which their crews would join the recovery effort. They were offered a wage, the same to be paid to all of those already diving, and they would rotate into the schedule. Beyond that, they had supplies, they had food and water that the ships already on the site were close to running out of. With their arrival, the reclamation effort was able to be redoubled rather than paused. No, I can't... I can't see the benefit that it would have served Phipps to arrange this beforehand. It would have meant a cut into his wages. Maybe, maybe he owed these men. Maybe some of them were among that crew that he had to maroon. Regardless, this saved the mission just at the nick of time. It pumped new energy 
into the reclamation, and after only a few weeks, they had pulled up an amazing amount of treasure. 25 tons of silver, seven classic Spanish guns, a tidy bit of gold and jewels and some other valuables, made that more than enough to make this voyage a success. But it was really only a fraction of what they supposed was available down there. However, the time had come. The crews were all running low on supplies by that point, and there was a question of security. The Duke of Albemarle was in Port Royal. He'd left London shortly after William Phipps. He had business there with Sir Henry Morgan, and he had separate business with the governor of Port Royal. And both were important, but he was also there to ensure that he would be available to William Phipps and his treasure hunters. Almost immediately after those two new slips arrived, William Phipps sent one of them out to keep the Duke abreast of the salvage. But after several more weeks, that sloop had yet to reappear. The consensus among those who were keeping a record of events on this voyage is that there were French buccaneers out of Tortuga that were behind the disappearance. Now, I could name suspects who were around at the time. La Rode Graf, Michel de Grammont, Michel-André Zune. But we don't know who the French buccaneers that were menacing this salvage operation were, if, in fact, they existed. Either way, it was time to make for Jamaica, and then for England. The James and Mary and the Henry escorted the Duke of Albemarle back to London, carrying... The silver, yes, but also prestige and glory, notoriety, and a giant pile of silver. It was a big deal. It made international news. Phipps accompanied the duke to deliver the royal share to the king. But it was a new king. While they had been gone, Charles II had died, and James II now sat the throne. James, who was looking for loyal men to do his bidding, especially in the North American colonies, saw an opportunity in William Phipps. So King James knighted the Massachusetts shipwright and made him Sir William Phipps, the first Anglo-American born in America to carry the title. And that's great and all, but James also gave Phipps a job. He named him the Provost Marshal of the Province of New England. With the stroke of a pen, that made Sir William Phipps arguably the third most powerful man in the province. I say arguably because there was the governor, Andros, and the lieutenant governor, but then there was Phipps waiting in the wings and he was going to get involved. And we will talk about that involvement. It's important but not next time. That involvement is going to convince a lot of New England privateers that perhaps America is no longer the place to be. Perhaps the king is no longer the man to serve. Perhaps the person to serve is ourselves. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be introducing the major players in that exodus of seafarers. And we're going to begin with a discussion of the early life of one of the most famous pirates who ever lived, 
a pirate whose right name, despite his notoriety, no one rightly knows. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. All of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilly. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight